welcome back to a new episode of the Oxford Policy Pod. My name is Vitor Thomas, a Master of Public Policy candidate at the Blavatnik School of Government at the University of Oxford. This episode was led and conceptualized by my colleague Chirag Shah. Today we have the second part of our deep dive into COP27. Our guest today is Courtney Howard, a colleague of ours in the Blavatnik School of Government. Courtney is an emergency phys physician from Canada who has seen the impact of climate change in health. She's deeply committed to political awareness and action on climate mitigation, especially in the health and climate change nexus. She sits in the Syrian Committee of the Planetary Health Alliance and is former president of the Canadian Association of Physicians for the Environment, or CAPE for short. She has also co-authored several articles published in prestigious scientific journals, such as The Lancet Planetary Health, among them, Ecological Grief and Anxiety, the Start of a Healthy Response to Climate Change, a Framework to Guide Planetary Health Education, Lived Experience of a Record Wildfire Season in the Northwest Territories in Canada, and a Pledge for Planetary Health to Unite Health Professionals in the Anthropocene. Courtney, thank you so much for joining. Excited to have you here. Ah, thanks so much for having me, Peter. In our first weeks uh, in Oxford, you told me the story of when you realized that climate change already impacts global health, and I'm eager to have, have our listeners uh, listen to that story as well. Could you talk to us a little bit about your journey uh, into working in, the, in this nexus? Sure. So I graduated from emergency medicine at McGill, and I really wanted to work for Doctors Without Borders, so Médecins Sans Frontières. And when you do, they say, okay, we want you to go get some practice working farther away from big population centers with populations who speak different languages, have different cultures, where you don't have as many tools as you have in a big city. So I went as soon as I could up north of the Arctic Circle in Canada to a place called Inuvik, which is one of the world's most northerly teaching hospitals. And it was December, so it was really dark and I knew there wasn't going to be a lot to do. So I bought a book on my way up about climate change because I had spent most of my 20s in call rooms and on call and reading and I didn't know anything about climate change and I kind of felt like maybe an adult should know about that. And I read it on the way up and by the time I landed, I was really alarmed. And so I did a literature review uh, on the super slow computer in the emergency department up there uh, one morning and found the Lancet's first commission on climate change and health, which said that climate change is the biggest health threat of the 21st century. And I was like, pardon? I just spent my entire 20s learning about health emergencies and you forgot to tell me about the most important one? I was quite angry. And so I, I looked up and I said to the nurse, did you know that climate change is the biggest health threat of the 21st century? And she said, no, but you know, my cousin went through the ice last week on his way to his trap line. And I started asking my patients and they weren't surprised at all. And it just happened that I had had what I would refer to as a climate awakening moment in one of the ground zeros of climate change. So that part of the world is already three degrees Celsius warmer than when an 80-year-old elder was born. So when you talk to elders in that part of the world, and so these are people uh, from Inuvialuit uh, groups, uh, Gwich'in groups, Dene groups, and this part of the world is very remote. So it's thousands of kilometers north of a city. And you can imagine it's very expensive to fly fresh food in from any place in the south. And so food from the land is still the healthiest uh, source of lean protein for pretty much everybody. So it really matters when you're moving from water that you can walk on 
water that you can't walk on or that's unstable. So that has consequences for safe travel. So there's an increased potential for cold weather drowning. There's potential for malnutrition. There's uh, changes in cultural sharing practices because a lot of roles in the family and in the community have to do with food seeking and food provision. Um, and there's a lot of changes to the actual landscape. So elders will say that when they were little, there didn't used to be what they say are uh, called landslides. And what that is, is a permafrost slump. So when permafrost is on a hill and you get melt at the bottom, the entire hillside can give way and it looks like a landslide. And those, the whole Arctic is pockmarked by those now. And so you can imagine that if you're staying in one place and that place starts to look completely different, that can have emotional consequences. And so we talk about that as uh, being a feeling of solastalgia or feeling homesick when you're still at home. And so I essentially uh, went from there, luckily straight down to a family medicine conference where I was telling everybody like, did you know that climate change is the biggest health threat of the 21st century? And I finally said that to the right person, uh, a mentor of mine named Dr. Konya Troutman. She walked me right over to the Canadian Association of Physicians for the Environment booth, he introduced me to their founding president. He invited me to their board meeting and I was essentially on their board a couple of months later without really knowing anything other than we really need to learn how to treat the health emergency of climate change. Yeah, and I, I remember also that you were talking about uh, this episode uh, when one of your patients actually got injured from melting ice. Uh, in what other ways have you experienced uh, the impacts of climate change on populational health uh, at, in your practice as a physician? Yeah, I remember that patient. He was someone I saw later living where I now live in um, Yellowknife, which is several thousand kilometers south of um, Inuvik. So we're in the high subarctic. Uh, we're about two degrees Celsius warmer than when an eight-year-old elder was born. And that patient had been on his snow machine and he was going across a river in the spring. And he said that he'd been going across at that time in the spring his whole his whole life. And it gave way, the ice gave way. And so we ended up getting catapulted off his snow machine to the other side of the river. And there was jagged ice there after it broke. And he got a whole bunch of his scalp just sort of taken off um, by this really sharp ice. And so I had a lot of time to talk to him because it took me a really long time to suture it up. And those are the types of stories we hear. In 2014, we were also ringed by hundreds of wildfires. And so what that meant was that Almost any day, it almost didn't matter which way the wind was blowing, we had smoke blowing towards us. And so it ended up being about almost a two and a half month smoke exposure off and on when we looked it up. Um, turned out it was one of the longest and most severe wildfire smoke exposures that's been recorded in the literature. So we had a doubling of emergency department visits for asthma. And when we partnered with the Yellow Knives Dene and the Kagatu First Nation um, and asked people to go into their communities and record interviews a little bit like this about what it was like to live through that summer of smoke, people said, well, they felt really isolated because they had to stay home with their windows closed in order to try to reduce exposure. They felt disconnected from the land. They didn't have the opportunity to do their normal cultural gathering activities of, of berries and of fish, et cetera. And they really worried about what it meant for their kids. So they would say things like, if it's this bad now, what's it going to mean for my children? And the 
one sentiment that surprised me and that I've really spent a lot of time thinking about since then was that the people who prepared the most, so who fire smarted their homes, who lined their boats up beside the river um, in preparation for a quick escape if the highway got blocked by fire, they had an entirely different tone to their interviews. So they, they looked proud, they looked empowered. And what we took from that is that preparation uh, for the impacts of climate change that we can't now prevent. So adaptation not only does good, but it feels good. So when we talk about ecological grief or ecological anxiety, we we are starting to understand that these practical things, I was recently part of the development of Canada's National Adaptation Strategy, and I'm, I'm so excited. It, it came out just a couple of weeks ago, and it's got target-based plans that are, that are going to help us have the targets we need in order to actually create the change so that more people are going to be like those that those people we saw in the interviews who knew what they were supposed to do, had the tools to do what they were supposed to do, did it, and managed to keep their community safe and had that feeling of empowerment that comes from effective action. And so those are some of the themes that came out of um, that study that I think have really informed uh, some of the work we've been doing around adaptation as well as mitigation. And since the, this awakening moment, or uh, I think it's more of an awakening journey, you've been engaged in, in several ways in the fight against climate change and also um, the fight for more attention to adaptation. And you have uh, studied uh, several different aspects of the, the global and climate change nexus, including eco-anxiety and grief. Could you talk to us about uh, this part of your journey of uh, you as a political actor uh, trying to promote change uh, regarding uh, global health and climate change? Yeah, so that's this has been 13 years now uh, since I really had that climate awakening moment. And so this is sort of a story of a super nerdy person. I was the shyest kid in kindergarten learning how to make change. And I've kind of tried it all uh, as I've tried to figure out what I'm best at and what works the best. And so I now think about this as being a spectrum. Like if you really want to make evidence aligned to change, this is how I think about it. So there's the data, there's, you know, either doing a good literature review or doing your own study to generate the data so we know what we're dealing with. There's coming up with policy recommendations that are aligned with the data and are appropriate to the context that you find yourself in and the political moment you find yourself in. And then there's a whole series of actions associated with trying to influence policy so that the policy recommendation you came up with actually comes to happen. And so that has to do with relationships with decision makers, with being aware of what policy processes are actually at play uh, in your nation or internationally making uh, different alliances with other groups who also may share similar objectives, getting a lot better at communication so that you can tell your super nerdy story in a way that doesn't sort of sound like a bunch of, you know, scientific or very medical uh, mumbo jumbo, speaking to people's hearts as much as uh, being able to help them understand numbers. And then um, building the team that's really required in order to affect change at scale. And so I think I've made uh, every mistake there is to make. <laughs> I've been lucky enough to either be taught by smart people or stumble upon good ways of doing it as well. And so as we've had some wins, starting to uh, teach other people how we've been able to do that so that other docs who are just starting to do this uh, don't have that same like extremely slow learning curve uh, that we've had. 
Perfect. And I think that this connects with uh, the article that are, you are working on right now. Could you tell us a little bit about uh, the, the subject and your goals and the challenges of uh, writing, uh, producing academic knowledge in the intersection of different uh, dis scientific disciplines? Sure. So we're, we're at this place where the Lancet said in 2009, which is when I read it, that climate change is the biggest global health threat of the 21st century. But the curriculum surveys that we do, and I've helped with several of them, show that only about 15% of medical students in the world are learning about this. And then when we survey the actual professionals, they say, you know, climate change, yeah, we think it's probably bad. We think it's probably our job to do something about it, but we're not really sure what to do. So that's what we know. And meanwhile, we also know that communications evidence is showing that presenting climate change in a health frame is one of the best ways to motivate populations to take action, particularly if you talk about the immediate health benefits of many measures that we can take to decrease greenhouse gas emissions. So we know that when we decrease air pollution, we save lives. Uh, there was a study that came out of Harvard a couple of years ago that showed that almost one in five global deaths is related to fossil fuel related air pollution. And that's not even in medical curricula now. So that means that if we phase out coal fired power, we save lives. If we move from a gas burning vehicle to active transport, low carbon, zero carbon transport, we save lives. Cycling itself also decreases mortality. Uh, plant rich diets uh, save lives also from excess consumption of red meat. Um, and so there's lots of ways that we can empowering women and girls uh, with education and access to uh, sexual and reproductive health care uh, decreases mortality from uh, natural disasters. It improves yields on female small holder farms. And of course, when women have the ability to choose how many children they have, they generally, on average, decide to have less children. And so that ends up reducing the overall carbon footprint of humanity while massively improving health. And so I love talking about all of those measures because that way I'm doing my job as a doctor in multiple ways. I'm improving health right now and I'm protecting the health of children um, as they come. But it takes a while to sort all that out. So there's a, you know, in order to really understand the impacts of climate change on health, the measures that we can uh, use to decrease greenhouse gas emissions now and improve health and also the behavioral change and the communications evidence that can help you communicate those elements in a really immediate and policy relevant way. It's well, my current reference list is 100 articles. So you can imagine if you're a busy doctor, you're just in the middle of, you know, fighting the pandemic. Now you've got this whole wave of respiratory you know, viruses to cope with your healthcare system is unstable, but you've got this looming issue that you know you have to attend to and you feel like you want to attend to climate change, you don't have time to read 100 articles. And so I've spent quite a long time, I, I gathered a group of people from around the world, uh, economists, doctors, communication specialists, uh, nurses, you name it. We had someone, we had people from six continents. It's a gender balance group to come up with a list saying, okay, well, what do we think the main actions that people can take are? And so if we as a health sector, we there's at least 45 million healthcare professionals around the world and the global health sector allocates 10% of global world product, 10%. So you can imagine that if we move together with actions at the micro or individual level, meso community level and macro international level in a coordinated way, we can influence 
narratives, policy, and markets in a way that I believe can be definitive in a transition to a low-carbon economy. And so that's what this article seeks to spell out in a way that gets the message across real quick with super, super practical teaching tools. And so we've already started using some of the plan and um, I think it's going to help a lot and it's uh, hopefully going to save a lot of docs, nurses, and allied health humans uh, some time. And you know what's so awesome is that when you do this work and you do it in a targeted way and you get to say, hey, we helped with the coal power phase out in Ontario and that led to a national one in Canada and that helped Canada co-found the Powering Pass Coal Lines and now we've got all of these countries signing up and it's working, it feels way better. You're just thinking about what you did and that, I believe, is the energy that helps to bring people onto your teams and gather resources. Uh, it works so much better than just talking about the problem. And that's why this work is fun. Thank you. That was amazing. And I think that uh, now you, you're already leading to my, the next topic I want to, to explore a little bit, which is your more political activity or uh, your an activity as part of civil society. So you mentioned uh, gathering doctors from around the world, economists, to start working on these more policy-driven uh, projects. Tell us a little bit about this uh, side of your uh, activity. Sure. So I've, I've had the good luck to work both on a really very local level and then at the national level and at the international level. And so some of the work we've done nationally that has worked um, was lending the voice of health to coal power phase out efforts. So saying, okay, you know what, if we phase out coal fired power, we're going to keep kids out of the emergency department with asthma that saves healthcare dollars, et cetera. So that worked. So we sort of put that in the, in the box of that worked, that would probably work in other places too. We've also helped uh, create the rationale for Canada's national price on carbon. So with relatively similar narratives saying, look, if we decrease, uh, if we put a price on carbon, we're going to decrease air pollution through decreased use of fossil fuels. Again, improved respiratory cardiovascular health. Kids don't have to miss school. Parents don't have to miss work. There's benefits for both health and the economy. And we we were pretty involved in creating the successful case for Canada's uh, federal price on carbon. And then when it was challenged in court, we were interveners in all the court cases. And when it was finally upheld by the Supreme Court of Canada, we were invited to the press conference uh, with the minister. And so I think that that speaks to the fact that it was it was useful. And it makes sense, right? I mean, imagine trying to be an economist and sell a carbon price. I think that must be one of the toughest jobs ever. And in fact, it was an economist that asked me to start working on that because he was so sad about trying to sell this carbon price. And so this multidisciplinary work where health provides the narrative, I think really works because everybody wants health. It's a real shared value that we all have. And it speaks, I think, calls often to the best in us, uh, particularly when we're talking about the health of our kids. And so we've done that work nationally. And as we've started to realize that networks are incredibly important for scaling this work internationally, uh, CAPE, the Canadian Association of Physicians for the Environment, became a founding board member to the Global Climate and Health Alliance at COP21. And this is all work that happens on the periphery of negotiations. It's an opportunity for people from around the world to come to a space where policymakers actually are people of other disciplines actually are to see what you can get done together when you're actually all there at a moment where influence matters. And so when I've gone to COP the first couple of times, I mean, these, this is like a giant 
conference. And it is very easy to spend your entire time there walking quickly off in the wrong direction, looking for a room you will never find. And then totally hangry because you couldn't find a sandwich because there was way too long a line and missing the minister's presentation because you were in the wrong room. Like it's very easy to be inefficient. And we were inefficient for a really long time. But what's happened is as we've gone, we've gotten gradually better at it. And as the movement has grown, there's been more of us there. So when we're there now, we're much more likely to, um, instead of me trying to do everything or a few of us trying to do everything, dividing up the tasks for, for the health sector so that some people are really working to influence negotiations. Some people are really working to communicate uh, to health sector actors externally so that they can put pressure on in their countries. Because at the end of the day, what happens in the negotiations depends on social license at home for the governments and the negotiators. And so we are at the point now where the World Health Organization has a pavilion. They've had a pavilion for the last couple of years. And so that provides a gathering place for the health sector. And just this ability to talk to doctors from around the world, share best practices in real time at a moment where you can then take that information to your delegation and try to find your minister right after or before a presentation, hand over your report, give him, you know, put a couple talking points across uh, that he can then take into his next meeting. Um, it's, it's a really fun place where sometimes we get more done in six months than we do, or in, in two weeks than we do at six months at home. That's so interesting. And also heartwarming to know that uh, there's so much actually going on and uh, you can really make a difference just being there. So talking now specifically about COP27, did you have any particular uh, uh, expectations about this edition? Uh, anything that would make it different from others? Well, we wanted to see loss and damage addressed properly during the negotiations. I've been quite involved in... Doctors Without Borders, gradual integration into the climate space. I was the international policy director for the Lancet Countdown on Health and Climate Change in 2018. And that allowed me, because I'd been involved with Doctors Without Borders and their planetary health-related motions that were started in Canada and were brought to the international board that actually were what gave them the ability to and sort of the agreed upon mandate to start to work in this space. So I was able to speak with the people who were part of that and bring them into the Lancet countdown process. And so we created the first policy brief um, associated with the Lancet countdown um, and Doctors Without Borders. And so they've been gradually incorporating this more and more into their work because as you can imagine, they work in many of the places that are already most impacted by climate change, uh, where floods, malnutrition, uh, conflict are associated impacts. And so we spent time trying to see how we could best bring some of those voices into these spaces. And so I, I was a reviewer on this year's uh, Lancet Countdown Policy Brief uh, with Doctors Without Borders, and their team was there. And so it was that um, set of narratives that 
I was hoping to communicate to Canada's environment minister, Stephen Giebel, we're, we're lucky in Canada right now because our environment minister is, um, he, he used to work for Greenpeace. So he was actually arrested um, scaling the CN Tower in Canada at one point. And so it's this, this moment where we have, I think he's been to 20 cops. So this is somebody who was interested in climate change before most of the world started. And so we we have an ability because we have a relationship with him where if there is a priority like loss and damage was this year, um, to be able to really highlight that for him and hopefully provide him with some of the information he can then use at the tables he sits at. And so we uh, spoke with him about loss and damage uh relayed a policy brief uh, that was quickly prepared by uh, the Jess Beagley, who's the policy lead at uh, the Global Climate and Health Alliance, based on some of the narratives and work that uh, Doctors Without Borders, Medicine Health Volunteer have been bringing forward. And, you know, you never know how much a conversation you had impacted things, whether it did, whether it didn't, whether, um, you know, there were so many incredible voices from lower and middle income countries there uh, who were representing this incredibly well. What I hope to do as a health actor is just make sure policy actors know the health implications. So if that can be helpful to them as they're trying to get language across, as they're bringing stories to the fore to try to convince other people that 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 knowledge gap has been filled for them. So I think we were able to do that. I don't know how much of an impact it had on on the overall negotiations, but, you know, hopefully it was helpful. At the end of the day, we're just happy it happened. Um, And I was also quite intent on um, the fossil fuel phase out work. So we know that they didn't manage to get a fossil fuel reduction as integrally into the final outcome documents as we had hoped to see. But there was really a lot of energy around that. So Sapora Berman is Canadian. She's the chair of the Fossil Fuel Non-Proliferation Treaty work. And she's someone I've actually known for quite a while. So we started speaking last year at COP26 about how the health community could become involved and had a meeting with the head of the Global Climate and Health Alliance, which led to them leading work on this. So in September, uh, managed to get several hundred health organizations to support a call for a fossil fuel non-proliferation treaty, as well as the World Health Organization. And we heard later from the treaty people that that was what some of the countries needed to start to commit. So we saw commitments from two countries in the lead up to COP. So although that wasn't part of the official COP process, that narrative was building momentum like very, very strongly or hearing it talked about all through the halls. And so I think that although maybe we didn't see that as strongly in this year's text as as we would have liked to, we're, I believe we're going to see increasing numbers of countries supporting this call for a fossil fuel non-proliferation treaty, and that is going to end up influencing that text as well. So I was very happy that uh, we managed to get that done right in the lead up to COP and also um, we always looking for networks, like you realize how important it is to have actual organizers coordinating this, because otherwise it's just a bunch of doctors off trying to figure things out in their country on a teleconference somewhere. And we know the coal power phase out has worked. And there's a secretariat, the Powering Pass Coal Alliance Secretariat. And so I wanted to introduce the doctors to the Powering Pass Coal Alliance Secretariat. And I did that. So I got the Global Climate and Health Alliance signed up. We all met. The Lancet Countdown leaders were there. And so our thought is that because the Powering Pass Coal Alliance Secretariat is always talking to governments, 
they will be able to let us know which governments are on the verge of signing on. And at that point, we can preferentially mobilize the health actors in our network to start to do the work of lending the health voice to coal power phase out efforts in their their jurisdiction. So those were the things I was hoping to get done in the lead up to COP and at COP. I got them done. And I'm relatively pleased with that. It sounds absolutely overwhelming. But what strikes me the most is the optimism that I, I hear in your, in your tone of voice and everything that you're bringing. And it really sounds like we, we are making a lot of progress. But I still have the question of, are we moving at a sufficient speed towards a, a concrete um, action that will, will help us make climate change not as damaging as uh, we hear people speaking most of the time? Well, we know that the nationally determined contributions of the countries of the world that have so far been put forward are not adequate to keep us below one and a half degrees Celsius or even two degrees Celsius. I think of this, though, as happening at multiple levels all at once. So so in terms of a, a take home message at the macro scale, the numbers aren't adding up. But if you start to look at the behavioral change and what's happening at the individual or micro level, and then the meso or uh, community level and the macro level and all of those different iterative concrete changes that are happening. And you start to realize that there's feedback loops. And this has been modeled uh, in um, looking at sociopolitical tipping points. There's feedback loops between. So, for instance, if I show up somewhere with a bike helmet, I'm actually starting to change a social norm. So that starts to indicate to other people, huh, she biked. And they might, if enough people show up with bike helmets, start to bike themselves. And then that overall changes social norms. And the thing is, humans, we are social beings. And so when we each make change, we have incredible pull on the people who know and trust us, who are part of our immediate circle. So if we're doing that on the individual level, and then for instance, hospitals are starting to do that on the, the meso level, uh, so able to allocate 10% of global world product, and you start to see hospitals that have solar panels on their roofs, um, gardens out in front are connected into active transport networks, are decarbonizing their supply chain, and are letting people know that that's happening. We know solar panels, for instance, are catching. So, so solar uh, panels go viral. If you see one on someone's roof in one location, it becomes statistically more likely that you'll see more. And so what we're looking for is to communicate both via narrative, but also via what we've actually done, what people see, that norms are changing. Because once enough people start to support climate policy via those changes, all of a sudden you get these tipping points where policies change and what uh, incentives governments provide to industry change. So all of a sudden, these the subsidies aren't with fossil fuels. They're with solar panels. All of a sudden, the investment isn't into the new fossil fuel uh, project. We're starting to bet that those are going to get left in the ground. It's into renewable energy. And there's a point where it's actually not linear. And so what we're hoping to see is the accumulation of all of those changes at the micro level, meso level, macro level, starting to influence the policy web, influence the subsidy web, influence markets. Because really, investment's all about what you believe is going to happen, right? Are you going to invest in Shell? That depends on if you believe they're going to get 
to pull their fossil fuel reserves out of the ground and sell them or not. The minute most people believe that's going to be stranded. So there's no longer a reason to invest in Shell. And that's not going to be something that happens in a linear manner. And do I think that we are, that we have the potential to see far more rapid shifts towards a low carbon world than we expect. Yes, I absolutely, I I think it's going to happen way faster than we would currently think. Do I also think that we're going to have to, and we currently have to exert significant thought and resource to preparing for the impacts of climate change that we have signed up for that we can't now avoid? Yes. So this is a combined sprint. This is a mitigation sprint. And I think that's going to happen faster than we think combined with an adaptation sprint. And I unfortunately think, you know, climate impacts are going to maybe come faster than we even think as well. So this is a not an either or, this is a both and. And of course, um, as much as possible, funneling uh, climate finance and technology to lower and middle income countries that have done the least to cause the problem and are seeing the first and worst impacts to support them from a loss and damage perspective. Uh, because that's not something we've done well at all in the past. And it's something we can do well in order to make sure that we can protect health and health systems in particular. That was a long answer to your question. But it was a lovely answer. I loved hearing it. Uh, and actually, many of our listeners are either uh, policy uh, in the policymaking arena or in the politics arena or engaged civil society, uh, members of civil society. What recommendations would you make for those who want to get more involved in these feedback loops and accelerating our fight? Uh, against climate change and for adaptation? A lot of my recent changes in practice have had to do with work I've been doing with uh, Ed Maybach, who's um, one of the world's top climate change communications professionals. And what his work shows is that talking about climate change with a health frame is one of the best ways to help people connect these impacts into what's relevant to them and their daily lives. So When people are entering this space, take a look at what the health impacts are in your area. Be able to articulate those. Be able to say a story about that. You know, when you're when you went to visit your grandmother and she was in a really, really hot apartment on the third floor and how difficult that was for her health. These are the things people can connect with that are very different than talking about polar bears or CO2 levels in the atmosphere. I now, in almost every interaction, try to structure it one third problem two-thirds solution. The work I've done around ecological grief and eco-anxiety shows that essentially people have a limited window where they can tolerate emotionally distressing news before tuning out. And so watch who you're talking to, watch your audience. If you're leaving audiences crying, you probably haven't quite hit your ratio right. And so getting used to having a solution for the person you're talking to that that person can actually do. And so bringing a story that is relevant, that has to do with health, uh, to help people understand the impact and having a solution ready to go that that person can actually action is super important because that way you're talking to their head from a practical perspective. You're talking to their heart and you're giving them something to do with their hands. And if you can always address head, heart and hands, this is Marshall Ganz's methodology, I think you'll find that all of a sudden the wheels of change start to move. Courtney, we are running out of time. I'd like 
like to thank you so much for your participation. It's absolutely brilliant and it left on a, an extremely optimistic note, which is always really nice to, to listen these days. Thank you so much. Oh, it's been such a pleasure, Vitor. Thank you so much for having me.